0: You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to MidtownColumbia.com. Amen. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, I go by Aunt. I get the privilege of serving as pastor here at Midtown Two Notch. If you're a guest that's here worshiping with us today, we are very glad that you are here. Just want to extend a special welcome to you, let you know that we're glad that you chose to worship with us uh, this morning. We're right in the middle of a series we're calling In Columbia As It Is In Heaven. Again, In Columbia As It Is In Heaven, as we are looking into growing as ambassadors for Christ, as those whom he has transformed, made new and now live as his sent people to represent him in this world that we live in. That we're actually citizens of the kingdom of heaven, serving here to see Columbia look more and more like our homeland, which is heaven and the kingdom of God. We've said before that we do not see our primary means of making disciples in this world as by having powerful sermons, but instead having people who are empowered by the Holy Spirit that are sharing the good news of Christ with our city. Today probably fits along with that theme more than or as much as any other day or any other sermon in this series, as we'll be looking into the concept of how do we join God in his mission as a practice, as a way of life. How do we join our God in making disciples and seeing his kingdom come here to our city? We'll start in Matthew chapter 28. Verses 18 through 20, again, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, to give you a little bit of context about what Jesus is doing. At this point, he has already been crucified and already been resurrected from the dead. He's actually about to ascend and go up into heaven and leave his disciples with these marching orders for what they are to do while he is gone. These are actually the last verses in the book of Matthew, again, right before our Lord ascends into heaven. He says this, verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He starts, and as we'll see later, also finishes this commission that he gives to his disciples with him telling them about himself. He says, I have all authority. It's all been given to me. See, he has already died for our sins. He's already been condemned and crucified on the cross. So he has gone from the lowest of lows, having experienced death itself, to being resurrected from the dead, and now saying all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So now he, with this command, he is inviting them into his mission. He's already begun his mission of making disciples, of sharing who he is with the world, to see the world begin to look more and more like heaven through his ministry. And now he's telling them, okay, now it's on you to do the same. You're going to teach others who I am. You're going to make disciples, teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. And if I'm them, I can only imagine that I'm thinking, well, God, what if they don't listen? But God, maybe they already have these ideas of what religion is all about and what God is all about. And what if they don't want to hear what I'm trying to say? I'm not the smartest person. I'm not the most eloquent person. Jesus' disciples were not the most educated people. They were workers, blue-collar, many of them were. I can only imagine the questions that they had. I mean, he's talking to a a small group of people, primarily Jews, and he said, make disciples of all the nations, people that think different from them, look different from them, act different from them, believe differently from them. I can only imagine what they thought at this time. I remember being on a mission trip in Virginia Beach, and at, at that point, we were just trying to share Jesus with as many people as we could. I remember talking to one guy. And after sharing uh, the gospel with him and, and just talking with him for a little bit, he said, hey, I think what y'all doing is great. I think it's wonderful. But he's like, you got to know a lot of people, they're not going to believe what you're saying. He said, there's some people because of their background, because of how they are brought up. There's nothing. Like, he's like, you're not going to be able to make them believe what you're saying just because they've been trained differently already. And I have to admit, I, fe- I felt a little bit discouraged when he said that. You know, I've shared Christ with people before, and they, not, they didn't want to listen to what I was saying, so I felt a little bit discouraged. What I wish I would have said to him in that moment is that, okay, you're right. I can't make them believe, but Jesus said all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. He said that he has all authority, and then look at how he finishes off verse 20. He says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The Great Commission is a command, but it also comes with two promises. The first one is Jesus is saying, I have all authority in heaven and on earth. And at the end, he says, and I am with you even to the end of the age. He's saying, so as you are going about making disciples, even though they're about to see him ascend up into heaven, he's saying, don't don't misunderstand. I am still going to be with you as you are making disciples, even though you won't be able to see me. The resurrected one, he's saying, I'm going to be with you. The one that reigns over creation, he's saying, I am going to be with you. He says, I'll always be with you until I come back to fully establish my kingdom in the earth. I wish I would have said to that man that day, you're right, I can't make people believe, but I know the one who can save anyone. I know the one who was powerful enough to rescue anyone. I know that the fact that he came and died for the sins of the world and was resurrected from the grave and is returning from his people is good enough news that it can save and transform and renew anyone. That's good news for us. That's good news for us. If we are to actually embrace the mission that he has called us to, we need to understand who is with us who joins us every time we go and proclaim his good news. If y'all were with us, uh, this was maybe three or four weeks ago now when we had the service where we talked about how children can know God too and brought all the children in the room. At the end of it, Colby prayed for our our service at the end, which he does from time to time during Kid Town. And he told me beforehand that he was nervous about it. He was like, I'm scared to pray in front of all these people. What if I mess up? I'm going to be real embarrassed And I told him, I was like, do you know that I get nervous also a lot of times before I come up to preach? And he was like, what? You get nervous? You do this all the time? I was like, yeah, I still get nervous. And I told him, but what I do is I remember that he is with me. I I know that he's already here in the room, but when I'm coming up to preach, I feel like he is walking up here with me, and I know that I'm not alone. No matter how incompetent or lonely we might feel as we are seeking to do the work of the Lord, we must remember we're never on our own. We are never alone. Not only do we have a companion, we have a companion who has all authority in heaven and on earth. It's often very difficult for us to believe sometimes that some people that are different from us, who think differently from us, can actually come to a point of placing faith in Christ. And we don't believe that that it's possible Another mission trip I was on in Ghana this time I was there with a, a friend of mine. His name was his name is Rome. Rome was sharing the gospel with a guy who was a Muslim. And then the guy says, you know what? I, I, want, I want to follow Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. So he, he prays, he confesses sin to the Lord. He's saying, Christ. I want to follow you now. Then he looks at Rome shaking, shaking, saying, what do I do now? Because my family is about to disown me. He said, I'm about to be disowned. See, he's the type of person that I would have believed probably is never going to come to Christ because of what it would cost him, but Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. At that point, it looked like how might this this, this faith spread as Jesus is saying this to his disciples right here, this, this group of Jews that were supposed to make disciples of all nations. They're going to have to encounter people that were very different from them, and yet today, Some 2,000 years ago, you have over a billion people on the planet that say, I worship Christ and I follow him. Over a billion people, why? Because Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me and I will be with you, even to the ends of the age. Our Lord can save anyone. Anyone. And in his infinite wisdom, he uses different means to save different people. If I had everyone who's a follower of Jesus in here share what happened that led to them becoming a believer, all of us would have different stories. Jesus used this. Jesus used this person. Jesus used my family. I was on a college campus. I was just wilding out, and then I started remembering all the things that I had learned about Christ, and he saved me. He saved me. On our missionary member covenant because we are so committed to following Christ in his mission. We, we believe that every Christian is a missionary, right. that there's no such thing as a Christian that's not called to go and share the good news of Christ with others. So for us to say we're a part of our church, we agree to also use the lives that he has given us to be about his mission and making disciples because you can't follow Jesus if you're not following him on his mission because that's where he's going. That's where he is moving to. So you're not following him if you're not going there as well. So as followers of Jesus, as a church, one of the lines when I remember covenant says mission brings the kingdom of heaven here on earth through communities of Jesus centered followers marked by faith, hope and love. Therefore, I commit to hospitality. That word hospitality, there simply uh, in the Greek, the New Testament word means loving strangers and has a, a sense of kind of entertaining strangers as well. So this is loving those that we do not know. Therefore, I commit to hospitality and sharing my faith through everything I do by the power of the Holy Spirit who is with us. One thing that I think is important for us to understand when we talk about How all of us came to faith in Christ by different means, that he used different people in different ways is something that I like to to bring up. I use the terms principles and practices. There are certain principles in the Bible that need to be the case no matter what methods or practices that you actually have. There are certain things that we have to agree on if we're going to say we're following Jesus, but the practices oftentimes can change. The principles, Jesus is the son of God. He came from heaven, lived a sinless life, died in the place of guilty sinners who need forgiveness. He rose from the dead bodily. He's coming back to judge the world and take all his people to him or with him to paradise forever. Excuse me. These truths, these principles we agree with, no matter what methods we use, this will be what we proclaim. But the specific practices that we use to proclaim those truths and the specific styles of worship that we might use, depending on the context, can change. The principles stay the same, the practices might change. And if you want to use seminary words, this is often called contextualized ministry. This is often called contextualized ministry, where the context that you're in determines the practices that are used in ministry. Just like God used different practices to bring us to faith in him, we see that in the life of Paul. We see he holds to certain principles no matter where he goes, but he also uses different practices based on where he is. We'll see this. We'll go in Acts chapter 17. You can go ahead and turn there if you desire to do that. Give you a little history on the apostle Paul. He was a missionary, he, he was sent out, he, he more than anyone else I, I believe that I know of in the Bible, felt called to what the Jews would have called the Gentiles, which is basically anybody that's not a Jew, anybody who's not a part of their culture or their a lineage, I would say. So, Paul, called to the Gentiles, would go to different areas throughout the world, preach the gospel of Jesus, start a church, and then oftentimes leave there and go somewhere else and do the exact same. This man would have had to know how to do ministry in a context that was different from his own. He would have had to know how to do ministry amongst people who think differently from him, behave differently from him, and live differently from the way that he lives. We're going to start in Acts 17, verse 16. Before we start reading, I want to let you know the context of this passage and what comes right before it. Starting in verse 16, he goes into Athens, but before there, he's in a place called Berea. Now in Berea, Paul goes in to preach the gospel. He goes first to the Jewish synagogues, And in in Berea, there's a strong Jewish background. They have this strong belief in the Old Testament. So the way that Paul communicates Jesus to them is he does it in a way that they can see how Jesus actually matches up and lines up with and even fulfills what is talked about in the Old Testament. And when he does it, it works great because they have that strong belief in the scriptures. And many of them follow Paul and follow Jesus because they they understand what he's talking about. and And they notice that it lines up with the scriptures that they already have. Now here Paul takes a different approach in verse 16 as he goes into Athens. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So Paul is there uh, just hanging out and waiting, probably from the other believers, waiting for the other believers in in Berea, I would guess. Because when he had to leave Berea, some people came in and didn't want good for Paul and actually were threatening, most likely threatening his life. So the believers in Berea said, Paul, you got to go. So he's in Athens. He's just waiting for them. He's not, didn't really go there for the sake of the mission. But then he saw the idols in the city. He saw the false worship and it provoked him. So to his normal routine, it says, verse 17, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Here it says he reasoned with them. It doesn't say that when he was in Berea, he just went and proclaimed the word. Here it says he reasoned with them. And we'll see this in a minute, but Athens was a place full of different philosophers, very much intellectuals in Athens, people who would come and share their different views and beliefs about life. And as he goes here, he's reasoning with them. They would likely have these debates where they go back and forth about what is actually true, trying to have these profound thoughts and debates. So here Paul reasons with them. Verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, So Stoicism, and if, hopefully I can say this right, Epicureanism, were two of the most popular philosophers of the day. So Paul here is actually conversing with leaders and representatives of those two philosophies. These are, your, again, your, your intellectuals, very highly esteemed, and Paul is going back and forth with them, which was very common in Athens at that time. Continue reading. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. That term babbler there carries a very negative connotation. They're basically saying Paul doesn't know what he's talking about. Paul, Paul is not as educated as we are. They, they thought that their, their, their intellectualism put them in a category where they couldn't believe something as foolish as salvation in Jesus Christ. They thought they were too smart for Jesus and the message about Jesus. Verse 19, and they took him and brought him to Areopagus saying, may we know that this new, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. So the Areopagus is this long-standing group that had a lot of influence, had a lot of power concerning civil ways of living or the way that they lived in Athens and Power over their religious life as well. So they didn't have any military power. They didn't have any type of brute force that they would use to enforce their thoughts. But because they were so highly esteemed and respected, people would follow them. So they had heavy influence. They, They bring Paul to these guys. Verse 21, now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there, would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So this is getting into what life was like in Athens. They would come, they would hear new things, they would debate, they would talk about it. They're always trying to learn more and more facts and more and more philosophies. So this group is very different from the group in Berea. See, in Berea, what, what they believed in the most was the Scriptures. So when Paul comes in, they try to weigh what Paul says with the Scriptures. In Athens, what they believed in most is their philosophers. And the Areopagus, this group of people that does all the the high-level intellectual thinking for them. So when Paul comes in preaching Jesus, they try to weigh Paul against their philosophers or weigh the preaching of Jesus against their philosophers. Side note, many Christians today do the same thing, but that's a whole other sermon for another day. The good thing is Paul is able to modify his practices and still stick with his principles as he serves as a missionary for our Lord. Look what he does in verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Notice he said, I perceive. He's looking at what's going on. He's, he's reading them. He's learning. He's listening. He's aware of the culture there. Verse 23. For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. Paul is perceiving and observing what's going on there. This is going to affect the way that he shares Christ with them. He says, and I found also an altar with this inscription. To the unknown God, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So Paul goes in, he's perceiving, he's learning, he's observing. We're going to see this affects the way that he shares Christ with those that Are there now? Remember, he just pointed out to them that they had an altar to a god they didn't know. Basically, they had a bunch of gods, false gods, that they worshipped, and it was like maybe we missed one, so we're gonna put an altar right here for the one that we don't know who he is, because we don't want to offend any god that we have not acknowledged. So Paul lets them know that he notices you got an altar to a god you don't know here, right? This is his intro, verse twenty-four: The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything he's reasoning with them. Okay, you got your gods here, right? They live in temples you made. You got you to gotta also understand they would, make, they would make these idols out of like silver and gold and maybe stone. And he's looking at them, he's like, wait a minute, you got to make your God? Like you... You are making with your hands. Your God needs your hands. This doesn't make sense. Then you jump down to verse 28. You see how he continues to make his argument based on where they currently are in their context. Verse 28. For in him we live and move and have our being. I know that resonates with some of y'all because I heard that coming up like I did. I know. I know. I can feel it on you right now. In him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we, indeed, for we are indeed his offspring. If you are looking here at your physical Bible, you probably notice that the, the formatting of these verses are a little bit different. It's also, you'll see a similar format in the Psalms as well. When the Bible is quoting or writing poetry or poetic literature, they'll often change the format. and it lets you know that this is actually written in a poetic style, what you're seeing, because it's hard for us to know that oftentimes uh, through the, the translation, So Paul is actually quoting two Athenian poets or writers and poets to make his point. He's saying, here's what he's doing basically. He's taking what they have, what they know, and what they understand, and using that to lead them to Christ, lead them to understanding Christ. Now, Paul loves to quote the Old Testament, loves to quote the Old Testament, doesn't do it in Athens. When he's in Berea, where they have a strong uh, opinion of the Bible and a high view of the Bible, then he's, quote, then he's leading them in a way that lines up with the scriptures and helping them make those connections. When he's in Athens, when what they care about is their philosophies and their philosophers, he starts quoting some of the people that they listen to and saying, hey, you already actually believe this. What you already tr- put your trust in is telling you the same thing that I am telling you. In him we live, move, and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said for we are indeed his offspring. Verse 29, being then God's offspring, we are not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. He's saying, hold up now. You already know and you already say that in him you live, move, and have your being and that we are his offspring. We came from him. Then why in the world are you saying that this thing is a God that you made from your imagination and from your hands? Do you see what he's doing? Do you see how he's he's changing up the way he goes about leading people to Christ based on where they currently are? He's saying, Hey, you know this is the case. He doesn't come in. He doesn't come in saying, hey, in the old testament, say God made the heavens and the earth. So, so why are you acting like this is a real God when you made it? That's not what he does. He believes that. That's not what he does. He says, No, no, you already know, you already know what you're saying don't make sense. You are already aware. You're a walking contradiction. He points out the contradictions in their arguments to lead them to Christ. Verse 30. This is where he goes in just giving them the truth. Verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Obviously, now he's proclaiming Christ as the one who will judge and reign over all the earth. He was raised from the dead. Verse 32, here's their response. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. So obviously some aren't believing, but others said, We will hear you again about this. Which in that type of a culture, Paul now is in. Yeah. He's in. They're like, Yeah, yeah, come back tomorrow. We'll, we'll we'll talk a little more. Yeah, we'll hear you out a little bit more. We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. Among whom also were, I can't say that word, and the can't say that word either, and a woman named Demaris and others with them. Some didn't believe. I don't speak Greek. Some didn't believe, but for some, he had built enough credibility with that one interaction that now they're willing to listen again. By tailoring the way he led them to proclaiming Christ, by tailoring it to that context, When he first goes in, they're like, he's just a babbler. We don't know what he's talking about. What is this foolishness that is going on? As he continues then to use what they already knew and use their frame of reference to point them to Christ, still proclaiming Christ, right? He's not pulling any punches with what he's proclaiming. He proclaimed that Christ died and was raised from the dead, and he's going to be the standard by which the whole world is judged. And everybody needs to repent is what Paul says. He didn't pull the truth, right? He's not changing his principles. He adapted his practices to the context, Paul believed in contextualized ministry. In verses 22 and 23, without going there, he perceived, he observed, he found things about them and their culture and used that in the way that he ministered to them. My desire, and hopefully all of our desires, is that as a church, we are those that are able to and that desire to understand our culture understand the people in our culture, and thus be able to adapt the way that we share Christ to those who are actually here, who are with us, who are around us in our city, that we want to see transformed and renewed by the gospel. To help us with that, I want to make an observation for where I believe our culture is now as far as the way people think and where I believe our culture is going to equip us to better be able to share Christ in the time that we currently live. And so what I want to do is use three categories to describe three different types of cultures. And in doing so, I want to explain then where we are and then how we should proceed, how I believe we should proceed biblically going forward, given where our culture currently is. Yeah, so three different types of cultures, and and I'll I'll talk about where we're at after I do the last one. The first one I want to point out is what I'll call a pre-Christian culture, places where Christian and Jew, and Jewish thought has not come into play and has not had a huge influence. I'm going to call a pre-Christian culture, generally speaking, because Christianity played a large role in the whole uh, embracing of human rights. When, when Christ has not been proclaimed in a place, generally speaking, there's not much consideration for human rights in those places, right? You see a lot of things like child sacrifices and things like that going on oftentimes in places where the Judeo-Christian faith has not been proclaimed. And we will call these pre-Christian cultures. The second one I wanna bring up is what I call a Christianized culture. I don't think there's really a thing as a Christian culture. I call it Christianized. If, if Christianity is present, and fairly popular in the area, right? So we've obviously seen this at times in our, in, in our country. It, it, but you can recognize a Christianized culture when being a Christian causes people to esteem you a little bit. You're probably a good person. You probably have good morals. You're probably a loving person. Right? People think highly of you. People might even think being a Christian is synonymous with being a good person. Right. In those types of cultures, in a Christianized culture, sometimes it's difficult to actually help people come to know Christ in this culture, because this is a place where everybody think they are Christian. Right. Everybody claims that they following Jesus. It doesn't matter. Do they spend any time in his word? Do they spend time with him? Do they, do they confess and repent from sin? Do they live on mission? None of those things. But in a Christianized culture, people think, well, I'm a good person, so I'm probably a Christian. Right. My aunt was was a minister in the church. And so I'm definitely a Christian. Like Christian is like one of a list of options. Well, if I got to pick one, I guess I'm saying I'm a Christian. Is how Christianized culture thought generally looks, right? The Bible Belt South is famous, notorious for this. And this culture, if you're inviting someone to a Bible study, they probably, whether they come or not, probably see it as a good thing, right? And that you're doing a good thing as you are inviting people into this. And then we go into what I call a post-Christian culture, post-Christian culture. They often want to take a lot of the values that they got from Christianity, but get rid of anything that they find offensive that they, and that they don't like from the Bible. So they're like certain aspects of Christianity, whether they know it or not. The fact that Christianity in, in many of these areas, in many of these cultures, w- with it brought the whole idea of the dignity of all peoples and human rights and that kind of thing. They want They want to accept and embrace the parts that they like, but get rid of the parts that they don't. It's, it's like they want, they want a lot of the things that were built into the kingdom, but they want to reject the king and his lordship, if you would. Many of the things that Christianity brought in, yeah, we want, we want those things. But as far as him as king that I have to submit to, you, we want the kingdom without the king in a post-Christian culture. Very prevalent. Especially the Bible's teachings about sexuality are seen as oppressive. Seen as immoral and cruel to tell people that God disagrees with the way that they're living their lives. People feel like you're being hateful if you're telling them that there is a specific and set global standard for the way that everyone should live. They feel like you are now using hate speech towards them. If you invite them to a Bible study or church service, you might be like, why would I attend something like that? It doesn't make sense to them to commit their lives to the Christian faith. In her book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, Rosaria Butterfield has a quote that I wanna share with you. She says, let's face it, talking to Christians, we have become unwelcome guests in the post-Christian world, where conservative Christianity is dismissed or denounced as irrelevant, irrational, discriminatory, and dangerous. Christian common sense is declared hate speech by the new keepers of this culture. The old rules don't apply anymore, Many Christians genuinely do not know what to say to their unbelieving neighbors. The language and the logic have changed almost overnight, she says. So where are we? Where are we in this? I believe... If we're talking about in Columbia as it is in heaven, we're somewhere in between Christianized and post-Christian. I think depending on where you are, you're going to find some of both. Personally, from my opinion, in my time, especially spending time in the neighborhood in Pinehurst where we do our prayer walks, I believe I see a lot of Christianized culture, especially in those probably 40 and above. 30, maybe 35 and above, I see a lot of Christianized culture where being a Christian is highly esteemed. We go on doors, wear a church T-shirt, knocking and saying, hey, how can I pray for you? And it's welcomed. It's welcome. That's a sign probably of a Christianized culture where Christianity is esteemed highly and Christians going around praying for people is seen as a very good and helpful thing. I mean, just from doing it, I haven't invited to people's houses for dinner because I came to the, their door to pray for them. So this is Christianized culture. But I think we also, depending on where you are, you'll see a lot of post-Christian culture as well. And when we're not careful, it seeps into us right. also as Christians. If you're spending a lot of time in intellectual circles, maybe at the colleges here, you probably see a lot of post-Christian culture where the Bible is looked at as this archaic thing that actually isn't relevant for today. And you're wrong if you try to put that on me and tell me I need to submit to that much influence from post-Christian culture. I believe we navigate between the two and it's helpful for us to realize and understand where we are. So I want to focus on what I'm going to call three practices of hospitality that I believe help us to navigate specifically in post-Christian culture circles is what I want to focus on today. Because I believe that one is the one that's most difficult for us, most challenging for us oftentimes in post-Christian culture. I say three practices of hospitality. I said said earlier that hospitality, the, the Greek word really, if you break it down, literally means the love of strangers or loving strangers or maybe welcoming strangers. So how do we best love those that are not followers of Christ? that are heavily influenced by a post-Christian culture, whether they realize that that is what is going on or not. How do we best help and serve them as we serve as witnesses and missionaries for our Lord? Three practices of hospitality and loving those who might be outsiders from the church. The first one I would say is what you're going to need is interactions that build credibility. Interactions that build credibility. So this is me seeking to get incredibly practical here on what I believe would be helpful for us. If someone has been highly influenced by post-Christian culture and you invite them to a church service, they might say, yeah, that's great. If that works for you, you do you, but that doesn't work for me, so I'm not going to do me. They might say that. Or they might say, why would you even invite me to be a part of something like that? I heard of one missionary who, well, he wasn't in Columbia, he was somewhere else, and who said, well, would you like to come to church with me? He's like, why would I go and be a part of a people that hate gay people? Is what this person said. Why would I want to do that? Obviously, as Christians, we aren't to hate anyone. But that is the perspective. I bring that up to say that is the perspective that many people have now regarding the church. They see no value in Christianity. They don't see it as helpful or good to anyone at all. So we need interactions that build credibility. Man, I'm going to tell you one time I was it was such a proud Past the moment, I about cried like a thug pastor tear. I don't know if you've ever seen one of those. It's just one that kind of leaks out the side. You catch it before it goes down too far. That's what it was. I almost cried one. We was in Pinehurst, and I don't even know my man's name. I can't remember his name. We were talking with him, praying for him. We were on the prayer walks. I know Meredith was there. LB was there. I can't remember if I left someone out. I apologize. And my man was super argumentative. With us, super argument. I mean, everything we say, he was trying to tell us why why we were wrong, basically. And 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 the the thug tier came because L B and Meredith weren't having it. Like they were defending the faith like something I ain't seen in a long time. And in my heart, I was like, usually I like to jump into those conversations when people do that because I like to tell people about themselves. But that time I didn't because I was like, it's already handled. Like yo, it's being handled right now. So I just stood back and didn't say much. But the the point of the story is so. At the end of our time together, after he disagreed with us for probably 30, 45 minutes, I mean, he wasn't, I mean, he was saying stuff like, he's like, I brought up something, I think, uh, about the Bible that happened in the past. He was like, See, that's why they call y'all pastors, because they always focus on the past. And I wanted to say, That don't make sense. What are you even talking about? But I didn't do that because I was trying to be loving and all that type of stuff. So I didn't do that. And i just let LB and Meredith do what they do. But, but here, here's what happened at the end. Here's what happened at the end. My man said, Literally, after, right after disagreement, his next sentence was, man, you guys are so positive. You bring so much positivity to this neighborhood. Y'all just, I just keep doing what y'all doing, because what y'all doing is really good. And I'm sitting here like, I want to expose the contradiction, right? Like, you can't say that. But then at the same time, I thought it wouldn't be helpful. So, but my point is this. He also was aware of the farmer's market that we used to do in the neighborhood, And also in that conversation, he was saying, yeah, yeah, you guys were the ones doing it. He was like, that was so great. That's what we need in this neighborhood. We need more healthy foods and fruits and vegetables. You guys were bringing that in. So even though he had, hear this, even though he had intellectual disagreements with our faith, there was credibility that was already built that caused him to welcome us into his neighborhood, even though he disagreed with everything we were saying. He didn't believe in any of it. As we portray the kingdom of God and live the way that God has called us to and show hospitality to strangers, it allows us to build credibility. And He said, Yeah, anytime y'all come through, y'all come by. We got another opportunity to be disagreed with for 45 minutes and then welcome back into the neighborhood. And I'm here for it. And I'm here for it. Because Jesus said, All authority and power is in His hand and that He is with us wherever we go and he is able to give us credibility and favor in the eyes of those that disagree with us when we walk faithfully as his ambassadors on his earth these interactions that build credibility they can happen in your life group they can happen in the way that you love on the children in our church maybe in kid town they can happen on your job they can happen in the school they can happen in your home in your neighborhood loving people well showing hospitality allows us more opportunities to share Christ With those who do not trust in him. The second practice of hospitality, I would say that is beneficial, that I've seen, is friendships that build trust. So, after interactions that build credibility, friendships that build trust. In a post Christian culture, many will approach the message of the gospel of Jesus the way most people approach a member of a political party that they disagree with. Let me let me say that again. In a post-Christian culture, many people will approach you as a Christian the way that most people will approach someone from a political party that they absolutely disagree with. I don't know if you do the social media thing, but if you've ever seen a Democrat, a hardcore Democrat, and a hardcore Republican have a conversation, there's not a lot of listening going on. There's not a lot of learning going on. There's generally I'm just hearing what you're saying so that I can tell you why you're wrong. And that's how people oftentimes in a post-Christian culture will deal with Christians that I have this thing about Christianity that I don't like, so when you come in and say anything that you want to say, I'm just listening so that I know how to disagree with you. But that's harder to do when there's a friendship. It's harder to, it's harder to completely dismiss something that someone is saying their whole life is based on when you're at the dinner table with them. And you're building and cultivating relationship and friendship with that person. Relationships are essential. They were essential to the way Jesus did ministry, they're essential to the way that we do ministry. You see, at Jesus' time, when you had a meal with someone, that was a very intimate setting. It communicated friendship, companionship with that person. So we see Jesus over and over and over again having meals with all types of people, Pharisees or religious leaders, sinners, everybody that was around Jesus. You see him, tax collectors, you see him having meals with them, showing hospitality to them and developing relationships and friendships. We must be good at developing relationships with people that are far from God. We need to be good at that. If we want to see Columbia look more and more like heaven every day, we must become good at building and developing relationships with people that are far from God. That's what the Bible is often talking about when it's telling us to show hospitality, that we would love those that are far from God. It's very easy to be dismissive of the views of a stranger More difficult to completely dismiss a friend that is sharing their life with you. The last practice I want to point out is words of truth that make sense. Words of truth that make sense. I heard a quote one time that was accredited to St. Francis of Asi. He said, preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. Preach the gospel at all times, but when necessary, use words. And I get what I believe I get what's trying to be said by the quote that like yeah, we should also be showing the love of Christ to people that we come in contact with. But ultimately, I don't find this quote to be helpful. Come on. I find this quote to be more problematic than it is helpful. Yes, it is. Because I believe, especially for our church, I believe for many of us, we're actually really good at building relationships with people. We're actually pretty good at getting to know people and welcoming people in and inviting them in. But I think sometimes it's like, okay... You've been building with this person so that you can share Christ with them, and you've been friends with them for three years, and you ain't said nothing about Jesus. You haven't said anything about Jesus to this person. You're just building with them. You're getting to know them, developing trust with them. At some point, we have to get past our fear of rejection. At some point, we have to get past our fear of people and share Christ, our risen, beautiful, glorious, almighty Savior, with those who don't know him and yet need him. I think for some of us, we're afraid of, you know, coming across like a salesperson, right? Like I don't want to come across like I'm the salesperson that's got to hit their quota of people I share Jesus with by the end of the month. And so I don't, I don't want to come across in that type of, of pushy way. So we, we kind of have the option of, well, maybe we shrink back from the truth and we don't share the truth. Right. And we feel like we have that option or we're just a salesperson. What I'm saying is, no, when we practice hospitality and truly build friendships, we're just sharing our lives with people. We're just sharing what we believe in because we are now friends with those that need the hope that we have. I know I have a family member. This is a guy who, I mean, was about as anti-Christian as anybody that I've ever met. Like, I mean, and I, I mean that very literally, like literally every time I, I spent time with this person, they would spend time just making jokes about how ridiculous they believe Christianity to be. And so I'm trying to trying to bear with this brother, trying to build a relationship with him, and he, and it wasn't that difficult for me to share truth with him, because he's usually bringing it up to me and trying to trying to trap me in something or, or, or whatever he's trying to do, right? So I built a relationship with him, got to know him. I believe some of his, his categories, some of his beliefs about Christianity began to change. And then... One day, we're on Facebook, just talking back and forth, and he was like, Ant, I didn't know there were Christians like you. His background was, when he came, when he was coming up, people would just say things about God. He would have questions. They wouldn't explain anything. I believe there was some amount of, of hurt from the church in his background. So he, he needed a little bit of credibility for the Christian faith. He needed some credibility to be built. And as we've continued to have a relationship, he's always been like, "Aunt, there's something just different about The way that you live. And then it was probably about six or so months ago. And he said, I haven't done it yet. And I'll probably try to send him this sermon and get him to come in here. He actually said, he said, I want to come to one of your services and hear you preach. He was like, I want to come in. I want to hear what you have to say because I, I believe that I trust you. So I actually want to come and hear what you have to say. So this has been a long, drawn out process for him. I mean, I've known him for probably about three or four years and trying to continue to build a relationship with him, trying to continue to use words that make sense to him and helping him understand who Christ is, that God actually does exist. And now hopefully I'm having more and more opportunities to share Christ with him in a way that he can actually understand. I want to try to equip us just very briefly on one way that I try to do that consistently. I try to use, I try to, pay very careful attention to people's hurts and people's hopes. Hurts and hopes. If we truly believe that Jesus is the answer for all the hurt and all the suffering in this world, that it makes sense then that as we understand what people's hurts are, we're able to explain Christ to them on a deeper level. We can help them understand how he is what they're actually looking for. I had a co-worker, his name's Daniel, and he... I could tell something was bothering him one day. We had a pretty decent relationship, and, and I asked him, man, what's going on? And he just shared with me some stuff about his family that was really difficult. he was going through, and I asked him, I, I'm, okay, he's sharing a hurt with me. And so I asked him, how do you deal with that pain? How do you, what do you do when you feel that type of pain? So we were in the gym, and this, and, and this culture, this, what he said, completely makes sense, even though it might sound foreign to some of us. He said, I don't know, man, I just work out harder. I just try to push myself harder to, to deal with it. And that's how I deal with family brokenness that is hurting his soul. That's all he has. More leg presses, more squats. This is the, this is the depth of what he has to deal with the deep pain in his life. So I simply said, can I share with you what I do, what I go to, where I find strength, where I find comfort in times that are really difficult? And I was able to reveal to him how I run to Christ and why I put my trust and hope in him. I had another client she was wanting to, to have a baby. She was a single woman. She wanted to have a baby, extremely bad. And she was just saying, I feel like th- my life would just be better. It would just be okay if I was just able to have a baby. Biblical hope is not I'm hoping something's going to happen. I'm wishing something is going to happen. Biblical hope is the thing that I'm believing in that it will make me okay, that will make me all right. That's what hope is in the Bible. And literally in the middle of a workout, and she was explaining this to me, I said, that's not going to do for you what you think it is. That's not going to do for you what you think it's going to do for you. And literally from then on, she's just asking me, what do you mean? What are you talking about? What are you saying? And so she's now asking me to share with her the hope that I have. And if Jesus is actually our true hope, actually what makes us okay, what will make our world okay, then it makes sense that we would listen to people's hopes and let them know that that won't do for them what they think it will do for them. And then share what can actually do for them what they are looking for. where where true hope is actually found. If we want to grow as missionaries who are able to share truth, that makes sense. I believe as we know what people's hurts are, what people's hopes are, we're able to give them actually true hope and the one that came to take away all of their hurts, that cares about their hurts in this life and takes away their hurts for all of eternity. In a few moments, we're going to approach the communion table where we remember that our Savior took our hurts upon himself, suffered in our place and gave us hope that he will one day finish his work and bring us to be with him. I'll pray for us and we'll open the communion table and partake in communion together. Father, thank you for being with us through the end of the age. Father, we thank you that all authority, all power in heaven and on earth has been given to you. Father, will you help us to remember as we as we stand and contend for your word, as we stand and contend for our faith, will you help us to remember that you are always with us? Will you prevent us from letting fear of man or fear of being rejected by people? Will you prevent us from allowing that to cause us to shrink back from your word, from sharing truth with those that need you? And Father, will you help us to be like your like the Apostle Paul? who perceived, who observed, who found out things about the culture, who who was very aware of what was going on around him and used that as a means of sharing you with those that need to know you. Will you help us be those that share real hope to real hurting people in this world? It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.